Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. The ability to laugh at oneself is a valuable skill, and one which comedian Paula Poundstone has perfected on her podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Coming up, she'll share some adulting tricks that she's learned from her podcast guests, including why having multiple cats is the secret to cybersecurity. And later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans talks to Cologne creator Sean Crenshaw about his new line, Ovation, and why he wants all men to experience inclusion within the fragrance industry. But first, if you are familiar with the Ponce Highlands area of Atlanta, you no doubt know the historic Highland Inn and Ballroom. You might have even heard rumors of the recent sale of the building and wondered what would become of the century-old hotel and its attached venue, the Highland Ballroom, which has a long history of hosting music, comedy, and literature events. Well, it turns out the building was bought by the development firm Canvas Companies, and they've promised to not only keep the historic nature of the hotel, but to also keep the ballroom as a venue and home for the Atlanta art scene. Ben McLaughlin and Mike Garber are the managing partners of Canvas Companies, and they join us now via Zoom. Ben and Mike, welcome to City Lights. Thanks Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So last summer, the rumor mill was going nuts with the prospect of the demolition of the century-old Highland Inn and Ballroom. We had heard that the old owner had applied for a demolition permit, and people were saying the building was going to be no more. And then... Rumor of a relatively new development company, you guys. Well, word came out that you had intention to keep the integrity of the historic building and continue to support the art scene. And that's obviously fantastic news, but we would love more details. So to start out, what drew you to purchase the building? Both Ben and I, from from the day we met and the reason we partnered was that we both really love historic buildings with a legacy and a history. And once we started partnering together, we started looking at at all the hotels throughout Atlanta, all the historic hotels. Um, Both of us kind of had a dream of bringing one of them back to life. Yeah, no. And then I think also, you know, specifically with the Highland Inn, Mike and I, when we first started working together, had the opportunity to be neighbors. And we lived in Ponte Highlands on Ralph McGill and had passed the property for years and years and years and always kind of threw it back and forth. Man, imagine if we could own that hotel and the adjacent commercial building, you know, how awesome would that be? And yeah, as luck and the stars sort of aligning would have it, you know, we were able to to make it happen. Will this be the first hotel property that you've developed? Yes and no. So we actually were involved with um, 551 Ponce, which built very similar vintage to the Highland Inn right around the Great Depression. Is that what used to be known as the Ponce Hotel? Yes. Yes. Where the dance mecca MJQ originated, right? Exactly, in the basement, which is kind of shocking when you go into the basement there to think that MJQ was there if you had not been there at the time, because it definitely did not feel like it when we were first poking around. I think authenticity is a huge theme for us because at the end of the day, you know, a building is a building, you know, it's, it's bricks and sticks and the, the history and sort of the soul of the building 
is, is what shines through and what draws people to a building and why they enjoy it. And it's not one of those things that you could kind of put your finger on. So if you're, you're building something new, it doesn't have that story and it doesn't have the feel as you walk through it. So it, it's one of those things that's super important to us in anything that we do, that there is some type of connection to the past, you know, that then kind of draws its way to the present. So that anything, any building that, that we work on, we like it to feel like it's been in the neighborhood for the last hundred years. Yep. And this one has. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it just so happens it has. So it's, it definitely lends itself to that. Now it's a matter of trying to, you know, sort of take the past and the present and, and meld them together. And I think that's ultimately where our strong suit is, is trying to be respectful and, and have a responsibility to the buildings. Because at the end of the day, that building has been owned by several owners, you know, in its in its lifetime, and hopefully it will be owned by several others. So we kind of see ourselves more as stewards for the buildings and for the neighborhood than it's, hey, this is our thing. It's everyone's thing, and we happen to have the opportunity to be able to have a little part in its history. That's just so lovely. And that is not what we Atlantans have grown to expect from developers. Um, Atlanta has a history of just knocking stuff down and starting over. And as you're very aware, the Highland Inn and Ballroom has become really important to that community. That being said, it is an incredibly old building and probably needs a ton of work. So how do you incorporate those two goals? So Canvas Companies is only two years old, but Ben and I have been working together on pretty much every deal we've done since 2015. And we've specialized in working on historic buildings with, you know, good bones and usually pretty rough mechanical systems. So none of this is is new for us. It's all pretty old hat. I've got a background in engineering and Ben just seems to know everything about buildings without the the formal education. (laughs) But this is all all stuff that we've seen before. And over those past, you know, I guess seven years now, we've we've built great relationships with local vendors that we really trust who we know can get the job done, you know, when it comes to kind of threading the needle, which is what a lot of this comes down to. You know, when you have to pull a plumbing system out of a building and still leave the building intact it definitely gets tricky and and there's not a lot of plumbers who can do it right. But at this point, we've definitely found and built those relationships. We've kind of developed a business model where most developers, you know, are so focused on the numbers and we try to say, Hey, you know, what's, what's going to get us the best product possible and delivering the best value possible. So if we can save money on the project and keep our rents lower, you know, we do it because ultimately we want it to be attainable for the neighborhood. And we found that we can make more money by doing something that's thoughtful, price conscious and sensitive to the neighborhood than by just focusing on the numbers. Well, this sounds like a really good match. So for someone who lives in the area that's used to passing the building twice a day, how different do you think the outside is going to end up looking? Probably somewhat different in that I, I think we'll for sure give it a little bit of a facelift in terms of paint scheme, but the actual bones and integrity of the building should look relatively similar. And hopefully we're able to kind of open up the building a little bit more to the neighborhood, both logistically and physically, so that you know the central courtyard there becomes almost like a pocket park and meeting place for folks you know, with lots of activity going on and really kind of being a focal point of the neighborhood and and that street. For those who are unfamiliar, the courtyard that you're speaking about is a place that historically had never been available to the public. Previously, it had just been a place that you could experience if you were staying at the Highland Inn or if you were seeing a show at the Highland Ballroom. So will you elaborate for a second on what you mean by a public space element? We're still kind of working on design and dealing with drawings with the architect to what extent you know it will be public public i don't know it will be public and that people should be able to access it all the time if that makes sense it's not necessarily going to be like a a public park so to speak but yeah the the idea is to to open up cafe ballroom and that courtyard to make them much more public facing 
spaces, yeah, more accessible. Yeah, I mean, our, our, our long-term goal is for that whole area to kind of become a hub in Ponzi Highlands where the neighborhood can kind of congregate and almost a little town center for, for the neighborhood. Yeah, where, you know, the Highlands has sort of its high street and kind of main retail commercial node. Inman Park obviously has its space. Old Fourth Ward has Edgewood, Pond City Market, Beltline, you know, but the Ponzi Highlands, you know, has it and it's fantastic, but we think that we can add just another level of sort of activity and spaces for people to enjoy, you know, more consistently. You spoke to some of the elements that I think the community is most interested in, which would be the ballroom and the cafe and the adjacent buildings. Let's take them on one at a time. So with the ballroom particularly, there's been such a history of it being attached to the art community. There's been um, events there from an organization called Right Club. There's been comedy events there. There's been a ton of music shows are you hoping to be able to continue that legacy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both Ben and I are, I think like one of us had mentioned earlier, both live in town and, and are both very fond of, of the arts and, and the culture that Atlanta brings. So we'll definitely be incorporating that in. I don't know exactly how that plays out just yet in terms of the the actual specific mechanics of it, but it, but it's it's very important to us. I mean, our property manager used to run comedy shows there. That was a big factor in in you know wanting her to work with us. I'm an ambassador with uh, the Mint Gallery, so that that's always. I mean, that's that's half of what drove us to this is to help grow that sphere in Atlanta. Yeah, and it's important. You know, art I think is one of those things that generally is sort of on the front end of neighborhood growth and then slowly but surely gets pushed out. And it's a shame when that happens because it's what kind of makes the neighborhood unique and interesting. So it's always been one of those things that has been important to us is to maintain some type of art or creative element, you know, with everything that we do. And, and you know, and Mike had mentioned that, you know, we had met in South downtown on Broad Street and kind of the arts had pulled us together that way, having some mutual friends over at the goat farm. It's always nice when we can kind of pull it back to our roots and, and how we sort of got started together. Right. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes in for Lois Reitzes, and I'm speaking with Ben McLaughlin and Mike Garber, the managing partners of Canvas Companies, the development firm that recently bought the century-old Highland Inn and Ballroom in the Ponce Highlands area of Atlanta. So once upon a time, the cafe that's there was a very iconic place well-known throughout Atlanta called Cafe Diem. And since then, there, there were some other places in that space, but nothing ever quite as iconic. And I was wondering what your plans are for the cafe now. I think something very similar to Cafe Diem. It's, it's funny, outside of people being very connected to the ballroom, the one thing that we got over and over was, man, Cafe Diem was so amazing. We'd love a space like that again. So I think as close to that as we can get in terms of, you know, the the vibe and the feel and atmosphere is what we're pushing on. And hopefully it ends up being a concept that also is mentioned by folks for years to come as to how great it is um, and offering some type of all day casual cafe type fare. The third component that I see as what the community might be most interested in would be the row of shops that are connected to the Highland Inn and Ballroom. And one of them, particularly the antique store, has been there for over 15 years. So I know people are attached to the store. Are these shops going to get to stay where they are right now? We hope so. We want everyone <laughs> to stay. You know, it, it's been one of our focuses is to try to maintain local uh, retail mom and pop tenants because that's what makes the city unique. We generally try and work with more unique shops as opposed to larger chains, just something that we tend to understand better and, and, and something that really resonates with us. We're always trying to be creative in how we treat new projects. So to that end, you know, there's obviously some stuff that needs to get fixed with the building. You know, it needs a new roof, some HVAC issues, electrical, plumbing. But 
I think that once once we end up getting all that fixed up, our rents will still be some of the lowest in the area. And by having rents that low, it allows us to keep the local interesting tenants that makes it a truly authentic place to Atlanta. We never want to do a project where somebody could you know, pick up the building and move it to a different city and you'd have no idea, you know, where and what it is. But I think the Highland Row specifically, people know that that's Atlanta and and there's few and far between of those type of places left. So again, you know, it, it's a big responsibility and something that, you know, we don't take lightly about maintaining the integrity of that building. You brought up the price for tenants and hoping to be able to keep it affordable. How about the price of the rooms at the Highland Inn? You know, with construction pricing the way it is right now, it's hard to make a new hotel or a new anything without the prices skyrocketing. And I think we've got an opportunity with the inn because the building already exists to maintain a certain level of affordability. We're also going to play around with different models in terms of, you know, short-term, medium-term, and possibly even longer-term stays just to, again, be able to offer something up to the arts community and the food and bed community in the neighborhood that can come at a reasonable price. Yeah, I think we want to take what people love about the Highland Inn and then kind of find its next iteration and some type of flexible living concept we think could be really interesting, you know, where it's part European style hostel, part boutique hotel, and then part your favorite apartment building that you ever lived in. And kind of all those interactions with different folks, whether they're from out of town or local, we think can create this really interesting energy and atmosphere that kind of represents the neighborhood, but then also Everybody wants to be there. So whether it's somebody in town for the weekend because they're here for a live show or somebody here on a contract basis for work for three months or somebody that, you know, is a bartender down the road that everybody wants to live there or stay there and and they'll get a real local experience. That's wonderful. You mentioned people working and staying possibly for a couple of months. Do you see any impact from the film industry? Absolutely. They've already expressed interest in it. Uh, there, there is a big demand for more reasonable you know, midterm housing for crews and uh, gaffers and that whole part of the film industry. And so, so yeah, we, we've been in talks with people who work within the, the film housing space and uh, the idea seems to really resonate with them. That's just great. So I guess the only real remaining question is when? What type of timeline are you guys looking at? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, we're finalizing architectural drawings. Once that happens, we'll get into permitting on the city of Atlanta and hopefully we'll start renovating at the hotel building this fall. And so what's your plan of attack? Hotel, ballroom, shops? What order are you going in? So the shops will stay open and and there shouldn't be any downtime there. So we're actually in the process of starting some of that work as soon as possible. Great. Then the cafe currently actually has a uh, a pop-up, Sacred Dread is doing a little residency in in half of the cafe space. So check them out. And the ballroom currently is being used for filming for the next month or so. But but we hope to get the cafe and the ballroom back online as soon as possible. So hopefully sometime this summer or fall. And then the hotel building, you know, if we start in the fall, will likely take somewhere about 10 to 12 months thereafter from where whenever we start to come back online. Right on. Well, this really does sound like a great match. And I'm super excited to have you guys talking about your commitment to keeping the neighborhood cool and respecting the historic value of it all. It sounds like it's just gonna end up being a wonderful addition to Atlanta. Yeah, we we definitely hope so. And Anybody out there that 
has any past experiences at the hotel or ballroom or wants to reach out to us, we're, we're pretty accessible. So feel free to uh, drop us a line and we'd love to hear from you. Canvas Company's managing partners, Ben McLaughlin and Mike Garber. You can learn more about their plans for the historic Highland Inn and Ballroom on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. On her aptly named podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, the comedian has experts on from every nook and cranny of life to share their skills and secrets to being a functional adult. The podcast is often educational and always hilarious, and it's just one of the feathers in Poundstone's cap. The Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me panelist has recently rescheduled her COVID-postponed comedy tour with an Atlanta date set for September. Last March, Poundstone visited with City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzis, and here she shares why her podcast is, quote, an out-of-control adult education class that meets in a treehouse. It's a comedy podcast, but we do, you know, in each episode, usually anyways, we bring on somebody who has information that is, uh, you know, helpful to get through life with. And so, yeah, I mean, I wanted to know. I mean, I've been using my cat's names for passwords, and people have told me that's not a good idea. But what they don't realize is I have 12 cats. <laughs> I was wondering what you were up to. Yeah, in fact, that's why I have 12 cats, is just for every time I get hacked, I have to get another kitten. Aha. Well, so what did the CEO offer? He actually said you don't have to change your password. I asked him, I said, how often are you supposed to change your password? Because I had always understood that this was an important part of keeping the hackers at bay. And he said, you should change your password every time you get hacked. Uh, uh, but outside of that, you don't need to. All right. So, as I said, we bring on different people with, with information that are, is just sort of helpful for living. For example, somebody to talk about, you know, starting a small business, or we had somebody, uh, there's been 84 episodes, so I don't remember all of it, but let's see. My favorite one, I think, ever, because the information stuck in my head, was a plumber. We had a plumber. Joe the plumber? Uh, it wasn't Joe the plumber. In fact, it was a woman. But, oh, uh, good. I, you know, she said... Two things. One thing is that you should not put Kleenex in your toilet yes. uh, because it's a thicker weave, a tighter weave, and it doesn't disperse as well as toilet paper. And the other thing she said is that you should regularly pour hot water down your drains. Really? Yeah. It's changed my life. <laughs> um, and that was, I mean, she was on over a year ago, and I still remember that. But if you ask me what the person said that was there a week ago, I, I, I likely don't remember. But somehow the, the purity, the simplicity, and the value of what the plumber had to say has just always stuck with me. I really admire your having people on from all walks of life because it must take a lot of prep and and it shows uh, a certain self-confidence on your part in what you will ask them my original idea for this podcast was something called how to move out of your parents house and i meant that metaphorically as well as literally. And we never used that name, but that's still the sort of driving force behind who I have on, which is, what do I need to know to function as an adult? <laughs> and I don't need to know how all the plumbing works, although it might be nice, but I do need to know not to put Kleenex down there. There you go. You're a life coach. 
Yeah, it is a little life coachy. Um, not quite as hand-holding. Uh, but, of course, the main function of the podcast is to be funny, and I like to think we pull that off. It's me and my partner, Adam Felber. Oh, yes. And uh, we make with the jokes, and it's fun. I mean, that's I want people to go away feeling like, you know, they got a laugh and a little bit of information, and, and, and then the deal is sealed. You and Adam are a winning combination. Thank you. Did you meet on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, or did you know each other before? No, we met on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And Adam was in New York when we first started working. You know, when I first came to that show, he was still living in New York. And then he moved out to Los Angeles. And, you know, on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, in the beginning, and I've been there for 18 years, I think, when I first came on board, we didn't work in front of a, a live audience. Mm-hmm. Um, we all were in a studio uh, where closest to wherever we lived. So Peter Sagal, the host, was in Chicago. Carl Castle, who was the announcer and scorekeeper at the time, was in Washington. Adam was in New York. I was in L.A., etc. So when Adam came out to L.A., we happened to be on the same show at one time. So we were both in L.A studio together which is how we how we met and we became friends uh, we, I, my kids and I used to go over and visit him and his wife and then one day you know we still knew each other mostly uh, you know mostly through work but we had this also social relationship and I asked him one day if he would take my son to his hockey lesson for me because I I had to be on the road and and my nanny didn't have enough hands that's a uh, major step in a friendship. That is a major step. I know people talk about helping you move, you know, the person who has the truck who gets asked to help move or or pick you up at the airport. None of these hold a candle to, will you take my son? <laughs> and, and and if only you knew my son, you know how challenging what I was asking him was. It was, uh, it, I would say that categorically it's right near... Will you donate a kidney to me? <laughs> and uh, anyways, he did it, and that sealed the deal it, right there. It did. It, how did you first become involved in Wait, Wait? In the most boring of ways, they called me up and asked me, and I had never heard of the show, which I'm sure they hate it when I say, but the truth is it's grown a lot over the years. So they sent, this tells you how long ago it was, they sent me an audio cassette tape. Oh. And it was on the island in my kitchen for the longest time because I knew that's what was going to happen with that silly island thing in the kitchen. Stuff just piled up there. And uh, one day I had a nanny. We were standing in the kitchen and he said, what is this? Uh, and I said, oh, it's a thing from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And he said, oh, I love that show. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it was really based on my nanny's advice. He said, you should do that. And so that's why I went ahead and and did it. And it was, as I said, it was different back then than, than it came to be shortly after I joined the group. You know, once they started in front of a live audience, the audience is, is like a, another performer that you're listening to over the radio. You There's know, just, synergy. Yeah, it really added, it really added a big element to it. And the, we have the greatest audiences too. It's as if, it's as if they're handpicked. Public radio listeners. Public radio listeners are great. What more could you ask for? I know that if one makes a mistake in terms of grammar, oh dear, that they can get a little yeah, testy. But other than that, they're great. The, the grammar police are always out there in public radio, but they keep us on our toes. Speaking of grammar, in your podcast, you have a word of the week, and you do it through song. Well, I tell the word of the week and then I add it to my vocabulary song. My original plan was that I would have this vocabulary song that contained every word, you know, and so it would just get a longer and longer song. And then I don't know how many words in I was before I realized that will be really difficult to listen to. <laughs> War and uh, peace in this song. Well, exactly. So eventually I started, uh, you know, I do about maybe five words and and then they drop off. But we actually, speaking of of listener contributions, we have a listener who sent us a vocabulary song where she literally used in the song, and by the way, a lot more harmoniously and, and beautifully than I, my song is not, as Adam always says, is not really replicable. It It's a little uh, dissonant. But we had a woman who sent in a vocabulary song using every word that we've had as a vocabulary word, and it was 
fabulous. You see, there is nothing like a public radio listener. It's true. Uh, I mean, this woman could do this for a living, and here she is, you know, sending it to, you know, goofy, nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. You know, the weird thing about vocabulary words, and part of the reason I started the song is, you know, I, I can learn the word, and I've tried, you know, using study cards, you know, to memorize. There's a difference between learning the word and blending it into one's own vocabulary. Yes. Uh, and I'm not good at that at all. Paula, in addition to your vivacious humor, you are also known for your vibrant suits and ties. Would you tell us about your choice of fashion? Well, you know, a few years back, I was making some CDs, you know, performance CDs, and there's the cover art issue. So I was doing one that was called I Heart Jokes, Paula Tells Them in Boston. And so I decided that I would go with the uh, classic Minuteman outfit on the cover. <laughs> and I, I had a friend that was a wardrobe person, and I asked her to help me. And we went to these, you know, great costume houses. And so I get this Minuteman outfit, which, by the way, according to my friend who's a wardrobe person, they didn't really dress like that. What did when, they wear? Well, the Minutemen didn't have uniforms. Oh. Right? The Minutemen were, I mean, I don't know at what point they did or did not begin to wear some sort of a uniform, but the, when you think about it, the Minutemen, you know, were farmers and stuff who grabbed pitchforks and overalls, guns, and, <laughs> and ran out in the middle of the night. They, I don't think they, I don't think they had time for marching or coordinated outfits the way the story gets told anyways. I wasn't there. But anyway, so she helped me put this thing together. And, 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 I, and I guess I said to her along the way, I said, you know, I've always wanted to wear like a zoot suit. <laughs> um, just because I think they look cool. They are. Uh, they're, they're like a, it's like a piece of art, right? And it's, they're, they're, I like the bright colors. I like the size of the suit. I, so so I, she said, oh, you know, I can help you. So we, she, she had like a, so there at one of those wardrobe houses, I tried on a zoot suit. And it was way too boxy for me when I looked in the mirror. It just looked too boxy. And so we started talking about how we would alter it in order to, I mean, not that particular one, of course, but how, it, so she helped me design a suit that has a zoot suit, you know, style as a jumping off place. An and homage the, to the zoot suit. Tr- exactly. And then we, you know, went out and chose fabric and I started having them made at an actual zoot suit maker, a place <laughs> called El Pachuco in, uh, I believe it's I think it's Fontana, California, and they do a spectacular job. And what I like about it is it's a uniform for me. You know, I put on my uniform. But it's a wonderful uniform. Well, thank you. But, you know, and I no longer stand in front of the closet going, well, how about if I wear this with this? How about if I do what? I, you know, it's just I go in and there's my uniform and I put it on and I go to work and it's a lot faster. And I think as I'm putting it on a little bit like Mr. Rogers, I'm taking on the getting into character. Well, precisely. You know, my brain starts to do what my brain needs to do in order to go tell my little jokes just the second it sees those suits. See, if the Minutemen had zoot suits and they'd slept in them, you could have finessed this from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's once again history ruining my life. (laughs) I remember in our last conversation, you likened your stand-up to being like an orchestra conductor in terms of the way you talk to the audience. But then after you've talked with one person, you will cue someone on the other side of the house. Do you still feel like you're an orchestra conductor or has your method changed? No, it's the same. It's very, that's in, in terms of how, you know, how the audience in front of me is. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, somebody over in this corner said something or we got to know them in a conversation. And, and then maybe later in the show, you know, I, br- I bring up the horns again uh, or, you know, or I, you know, I cue the timpani. In that way, it does feel like that. Not that I've ever conducted an orchestra before, but the, I've certainly seen Bugs Bunny do it. He did a masterful job. And I would think your kids, like 
us and millions of other Americans were introduced to classical music through Bugs Bunny. Um, no. No? They did eventually. I didn't let them watch television while they were growing up. Really? Um, yeah. You I made mean, them listen to public radio, I bet. They did listen to some public radio, <laughs> although they, you know, they had zero interest in anything I did on it. Um, but for my daughter, my middle daughter played the violin, you know, from the fourth grade on. And so for us, the rest of us in my family, my, me and my other two kids, the majority of our experience of classical music was going to the concerts that the schools put on. And the Santa Monica High School Orchestra mm -hmm. is really, really good. That was like our big introduction. I did one time, to the delight of my children, we had, remember um, Bugs Bunny on Broadway? Oh, yes. Well, we never saw it, but we had the CD from it. So the Barbara of Seville is on there. Yes. And I did one time set the dinner table to the Barbara of Seville landing the last cup of milk on the exact last note. You are a conductor in the making. Yeah. So this very much impressed my children. That was probably one of the, <laughs> one of the finest things I ever did for them. The rabbit of Seville. You said that... You are in fabulous health, and you think it's because you are around laughter so much. I have no doubt that that has been, um, it lifts me up on an emotional level, and of course emotion and physical health are connected. But in the worst moments of my life, right, in the, in the years where I've struggled the most or where the worst things have happened, and guess what? That's how it goes. You, you know, things happen. To be able to go on stage and talk about those things and laugh is just the greatest. Because one of the things about struggling with anything, whether it's a physical problem or a mental problem, which we all have, no matter what anybody says, is feeling like you're the only one. Feeling like you're somehow put upon more than anybody else is. When you put it out in front of a group of people and they realize, oh my gosh, everybody in the room is laughing because they all have that too, or they're familiar with it, or it's not so unique. That alone lifts your little tugboat. Comedian Paula Poundstone sharing her secrets to mental health with City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzes. Poundstone's comedy tour has recently been rescheduled, and the new Atlanta date is September 17th at the Buckhead Theater. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. The idea that every man deserves to be celebrated regardless of race, age, or ability is the theme behind Atlanta entrepreneurs Sean Crenshaw's new cologne line, Ovation. City Lights producer Summer Evans recently spoke with Crenshaw and learned what inspired him to go into the fragrance industry. You know, it goes back to me being a kid, to be honest. My dad was a big fragrance collector and connoisseur and he was very prideful of his collection and growing up in a house with a dad that collects fragrances, naturally you're going to get exposed to fragrances and, and just to hear those stories of the things that he experienced wearing his fragrances. And I was always curious. I would sneak in his room and look at his fragrances that he had. And it led to me having this idea of, of creating my own fragrance. You know, as a kid, you dream about doing things uh, that you may see your parents do or some of the loves and passions of your parents. And it kind of planted that seed of creating a fragrance. And, you know, I saw other designers have their name on a bottle. I thought, wow, how cool would that be to have my name on a bottle? And to bring it all home, you know, I was in elementary school and I was having, I had a big crush on this girl in school. And I was just coming home, just frustrated that she was not paying any attention to me. Everything that I did to try to get her attention, it failed. And so I was telling my dad, he said, hey, I, I got something for you. So he pulled a fragrance from his dresser and I can't even remember the fragrance and he sprayed it on me before I went to school. And he was like, you know what? Just walk around her and just be around her. And just see what happens. And my dad must've knew something because recess that day, I, I did exactly that. I just, you know, I just kind of, went around her and went in her presence and she smelled me. She smelled what I was wearing. And she was like, excuse me, 
you know, what, what's your name? Hey, come over. <laughs> what are you, know, you wearing? <laughs> yeah, what are you wearing? That smells good. And she invited me to come and join she and her friends out on recess. And then for lunch, you know, she invited me to sit at her table. And so I went home and I told my dad and he was like, hey, that's the power of fragrance. And so at that point, I realized, man, if a fragrance can help me make my dreams come true, then I'm surely, you know, I can create a fragrance to help other people make their dreams come true. And that's how the idea really started. Well, dad gave good advice and it inspired a dream come true. <laughs> yes, yes. You've gone through several batches and iterations of your cologne and finding your signature scent. Can you tell us about your journey when you first started and launched the business five years ago to now? Yeah, so, you know, I didn't know anything about fragrance outside of being a consumer. And so it required me to do some due diligence, do some research. So before I actually launched the fragrance, I spent a couple of years doing research. I was going to fragrance conferences and I was on webinars just, just to learn. And it led me to meeting someone that was an ex-executive in the fragrance space. And I had an opportunity to just pitch my idea, pitch my story to him. And he basically was like, hey, you know what? You're on to something. That's a great idea that you want to create a fragrance dedicated to a market that traditionally is not catered to. You know, he, he thought that that was an opportunity and he was like, oh, you know what? Hey, I can work with you. Let me work with you. And so I started working with him and he introduced me to a perfumer and introduced me to a fragrance manufacturing company and helped me navigate the process of finding a bottle and, and all the necessary components and packaging. And we've been going strong, you know, ever since. And it, it's just been a, a grassroots campaign. But it took a lot of, you know, it took two years of planning and research before I was even able to launch a product and it was worth it. Yeah. And let's talk about the title of your clone, Ovation. Why did you want this to be the name of your business? It all started really when the idea came about or when I took it serious to bring the idea to life. There was a lot going on in society. I mean, you know, I'll take it all the way back to the Ferguson riots, you know, the incident with Michael Brown and and you push forward to Trayvon Martin and the incident even in New York with the young man that was choked to death for selling cigarettes outside of a store. And, and then even most recently that we had in Minneapolis with George Floyd. I wanted, with all of that being the backdrop, I wanted to create a fragrance that celebrated African-American men. And, and primarily just my humble contribution to create something that would inspire and motivate and provide a different narrative than what was currently out, you know, in media and just in the psyche of, of young men in America. And so the name, I wanted it to encapsulate the celebration of, you know, African-American men. And so I, as I did my research, I came across ovation, the word ovation, and it, it didn't exist in the fragrance space. And I said, man, what better word to really encapsulate my idea? And as I shared the name with people, I mean, instantly people think of, you know, an, an applause, a standing ovation. And we also coined the tagline, every man deserves an ovation. And so that's kind of at the core of the brand is celebrating and recognizing that every man, no matter their age, no matter their color, no matter where they're from, deserve an ovation, deserve to be celebrated. And for me, I'm focusing on African-American men to kind of address what I see that's lacking in the narrative of, of African-American men. And so I think it's, it's appropriate and really explains what it's all about. And speaking of the lack of representation of African-American men in the fragrance industry, why do you think Black perfumers and Black-owned fragrance brands are so few and far between? I think it really starts with just not even realizing that it's a possibility. And, and again, this is not a knock to the other brands, you know, to the Tom Ford of the world or the Calvin Klein's or, or, you know, Ralph Lauren's. I mean, it's not a knock against them, but it's just the absence of the imagery, the absence of the possibility leads to people thinking that it can't be done or thinking that it's not an option as a young entrepreneur or business person trying to come up with a, a new product or even explore the opportunities in fragrance, it's just, you don't see it, it's not prevalent. And so I thought it was important to kind of just address that and make the possibility real and hopefully to inspire other young entrepreneurs or people that are interested in fragrance that if you're a person of color, 
or, or anyone, if you're female or you're foreign or, you know, anyone that's marginalized or not fully represented, I wanted my brand to kind of stand as a beacon to inspire and show the possibilities of what can be done and to show that the market will respond positively to a brand that's dedicated to recognizing and celebrating folks that have been underrepresented in the space. And what have been some of those responses and feedback? Oh, it's been it's been great. I mean, people send me messages all the time saying, wow, Sean, it's inspiring. I'm sharing it with my son. You know, I'm getting it for my dad. Because here's the deal. You know, if you look at traditional fragrance advertising, and this is across the board. Here's the, here's the standard imagery. It's some guy in a Speedo with a six pack, with his hair slicked back, emerging out of out of an ocean or a pool. Somewhere exotic. Yeah, somewhere exotic, <laughs> exactly, in some scene of grandeur, you know. And, and again, that's the traditional imagery. And I wanted to show that there's other imagery that resonates with the consumer base that's not necessarily that stereotypical look for a fragrance, you know. And so, yes, fragrance is about sex appeal, which is a, a theme, a storyline that a lot of the designer fragrances and you know, they rely on, but there are other storylines. There, there are other stories that resonate and speak to fragrance. For me, it's where fragrance intersects with life. People share their stories with me about, you know, this is the fragrance I was wearing when I met my wife. You know, this is the fragrance that I was wearing when I had that big interview and I got that big job that changed my life. Or this is the fragrance my dad was wearing that I remember when I was a kid, when he hugged me on my way to school. You know, those are all storylines that are atypical to a guy in a Speedo with a six pack. And so I just, I wanted to address that. I wanted to address that and, 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 make, and make sure that my brand did not neglect those storylines and more so than just neglect them, but actually celebrate them and bring them forward. When people wake up in the morning, they see themselves in the mirror and then they go out into the world these various touch points, and they don't see anything or anyone that is similar to what they witnessed in the mirror that morning, it can have an impact on your confidence. It can have an impact, you know, on just how you think about yourself in the world. And because fragrances play a big part in, you know, in memory and, and confidence, you know, we wanted to tie those pieces together. I wanted to tie together you know, yes, you are represented in the world. Yes, you are important. And yes, you are celebrated. You know, we wanted to make it relatable and make it authentic. Mm, beautifully done. How would you describe your signature scent? Well, we categorize it as, as a fresh aromatic blend, you know, and so it opens with a bright blast of citrus, of bergamot, coupled with cardamom, which is a spice, and some aquatic notes. So the opening blast, the opening spray, the top notes, is a citrus with some spice and some aquatic notes, real fresh and airy. And then maybe three minutes after those notes dry down, you get to the middle notes and it's a well-blended craft, leather, tobacco, and vanilla. And so you get the signature right there in the middle. Um, the vanilla sweetens up the leather and the tobacco. And so it, it, it's really, that's what really makes the fragrance stand out. And then after uh, those notes dry down, you get down to the base notes and you're going to get a combination of oak moss, vetiver, and amber. So again, some nice woods, uh, not too strong. And the amber softens it up. And so in totality, you get a fragrance that opens, grabs attention with the bright citrus. Then it kind of cools down to the leather, and the vanilla, and the vetiver, and the amber. And you get this nice, sensual, soft, and inviting fragrance, but still stands out in the crowd. What was the process like to get to this signature scent? Oh, boy, my perfumer and I, I mean, we went through various iterations. Um, and I tell you, you get a batch from the perfumer, you get a sample and, you know, we smell it and we make notes and just keep tweaking it. You know, add a little of this, take away, take away a little of this. This is almost like cooking. I'll tell you, that's what it's like. It's like, it's like, <laughs> okay. you know, it's being in the kitchen with your grandmother or your, your, your parents or someone and you're making a batch of, of, of stew or something and you know and you're tasting it as you go and and you figure out okay let's add a little of this let's add a little of that and here's the thing with with building a fragrance you don't start the process with a recipe i mean it's a it's a complete exploration you know a complete creative process and if you can imagine being in the kitchen with just a counter full of ingredients and just asked to make something 
that's kind of what making a fragrance is. And, and you have the expertise of a perfumer who kind of understands the ingredients, understands the, the notes and how they, how they interact to help guide you on the process. But throughout the process, yeah, you're, you're pausing to kind of test your creation. My process took about three months, three months of sending samples back and forth from my perfumer in St. Louis. And we finally got, got something, we, again, we feel real proud of. Yeah. Did you ever feel like you've smelled so many samples, they started to blend together, like oh, yeah. trying to differentiate well, between you, them? Yes, yes. But here's the other good benefit, though, is as we were building, we recognized that there were certain points in the process where we kind of created a mini fragrance. Like we would, we would make note like, oh, let's make note of this combination because this may be a future women's fragrance or this may be a future ovation for men blue or ovation for men red. You know, so what was great about it going through the process is we hit these marks where these benchmarks or these these places in the development is like, ooh, let's make note of this because we can use this combination later when we expand the brand. They call them flankers. You can create a flank of fragrance to your main fragrance. And so we actually have, I have like maybe four recipes, prototype recipes for four other fragrances already on the shelf. Okay, so stay tuned for Ovation 2 or Ovation Blue in the future. Yes, yes, stay tuned. Stay tuned. It's coming. <laughs> Sean Crenshaw, creator of Ovation for Men, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. You can find out more about Crenshaw's cologne line on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the world's first aluminarium coming this summer to the Atlanta Beltline. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelly Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes. Follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. And don't forget, you can catch up on full episodes of our show on our website, wabe.org slash citylights, or on your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.